Welcome to the Human Capital Lab, a podcast for learning and development leaders who understand education is the link between employee fulfillment and corporate productivity. I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Epler. Let's get started. In a previous episode, we discussed trends in leadership development, but today we want to explore how to prepare for developing, delivering, and managing leadership programs within global organizations. Global leadership competency is essential in today's knowledge economy. Unlike physical goods, the trade of information requires a level of human interpretation to translate, analyze, and apply the data, making cultural competence and global perspective essential skills for today's leaders. For a while now, Organizations have considered developing global capabilities in their leaders to be a top priority. From expectations that learning be delivered in multiple modes, in the flow of work, and align with linking the ways we learn to aligning with top business goals, we are asking a lot from these programs. Where do talent leaders start? Today, We have Nick Allen, who is the Director of HR Business Partner for CNA Insurance. He brings over 20 years of experience as a progressive talent development leader and trusted business advisor with focus on improving business returns through positioning, developing, and leveraging human capital. His concentration has spanned from supporting the growth of high-performance teams at a local level, all the way to leading the rollout of various talent development programs across the globe. Nick, welcome to the Human Capital Lab podcast. It's just an honor to have someone with your vast experience join us to share your experiences today. Thank you, Michelle. I'm honored to be here. Well, let's just dig in right away because there's so much to learn from you. When it comes to talent programs on a global scale, How does a new talent developer even begin this project? You know, I think that I really reflected on this. Becoming a student before you become a leader or a teacher or an influencer is really critical. And that's both within and outside the organization. So taking the time to really understand the organization, what are we trying to accomplish? And this ranges from within an organization looking at their annual report that may be put together for investors and for the board, maybe you know 100 plus pages long. I found just reading the first 15 to 20 pages gets you a lot of the intel that's extraordinarily helpful when you're wanting to roll out global programs and really understand from the perspective of the C-suite from the board of directors, what are we trying to accomplish as an organization? What are our strategic imperatives? What are some of the biggest roadblocks that we've had and had to try to overcome over the past year when we see ahead? So that's a really key data point. The investor calls, taking time to listen in on those to understand from an investment perspective, like what really matters for the business. And then understanding from a team member perspective, if there's any sort of engagement survey, pulse survey, et cetera, taking the time to get my arms around that information, current programs that are offered by the organization and what's already out there that we don't necessarily need to reinvent, but that we could be leveraging maybe in different ways. And understanding from a perspective of business leaders and employees, like what really are the value of those programs we already have? And then outside the organization, Developing a really rich network, investing in your network is really critical. At least it has been for me. Um, And um, finding others 
professionals that do similar type of work around global talent management at other organizations. You know, the more that you dive into it, you realize there's not really anyone that's a, a true like expert. We're all learning together. And that's what's really special about it, right? And so we learn, we're always learning and bouncing ideas across each other. I was just in a session yesterday where somebody was really trying to enhance some pipeline development programs. And like we had a really rich dialogue from leaders from a dozen different companies that weighed in on the topic and provided perspective on here's different things to consider. And so having kind of that thought partner network that you participated and you invest in is really critical. I was recently moderating a panel that was talking about this topic. And one of the things that I hadn't really thought about when it came to this was the way talent development teams are organized. So when you think about, are they centralized? Are they decentralized? What sort of advice would you give for those working in the centralized designs as they begin? And what might be different in the decentralized designs? I think it really depends on the organization. You have to look at the larger structure of the organization. How is the business organized and why? And I think that gives you a lot of intel on does it make sense that we would have a completely centralized or decentralized learning organization. The learning organizations that I've been involved with, with actually every company that I've been involved with in my career so far, has really followed more of a hybrid model of that, that I've found to be, and I just, I recently heard the term a federated model, but I think that's what makes a lot of sense in a lot of organizations where there's a central core group of folks that are part of talent development, talent management, that really help to set core programs, guidelines and guidance, and some core kind of support resources that manage some core tools that may be involved, et cetera. And then from a decentralized perspective, you may have like one or two or, or maybe a whole team, depending on the size of that part of the organization, learning leaders that are connected in with that specific business unit. So, you know, let's say your organization has five different major business units. You might have five decentralized functions with them that are reporting into those parts of the organizations that are more connected into the business results that organization is trying to accomplish, but very much interconnected in with the centralized team, usually probably part of some sort of round table so that there's idea sharing and making sure that we're not, you know, overstepping on what we're trying to implement. Great. So let's change the topic just a little bit and let's go to talking about leadership development frameworks. There's a lot of literature that discusses making sure our programs have three components in the framework, experimenting that action on the job experience, self-discovery, understanding your identity, interactions with others, and sense-making, that knowledge-structured learning programs. Can you share a brief explanation of how you incorporate these, or if you do, and talk about how that works at a global scale and what it takes to execute? <laughs> yeah, it sounds simple in nature, but then when you think about it on a global perspective, one small adjustment or implementation on a, that seems simple on a global scale becomes very complicated. So yeah, the, this what you speak of, what we have referred to for many years in the world of learning and development is the classic 70-20-10 model. 70% of development and career development is done on the job. The 20% is done through coaching and mentoring, and 10% is done through formal classroom-based learning. And it's just a general 
mantra. There is some level of research that was done decades ago to support this that helped to drive that model. But it's just a general mantra that we kind of follow and think about as we're thinking about the experiences that we're trying to create from a development perspective. And it's and I think where it becomes complex from a global rollout perspective is the relevancy. What is in that 70, 20, and 10 that's relevant for different stakeholders, different employee groups, different leadership groups across the globe? And so what I found, just kind of generally speaking, in employees in other parts of the world, so for a US-based company with many locations in different parts of the world, when you're in those other um, countries, can sometimes feel very disconnected to home base and can feel very U.S. centric in the type of options that are developed and how we're trying to develop, right? And so it's always been a place for me that I would definitely say I'm not perfect in, but I've tried to do a lot in being really thoughtful about what that means and how we're rolling out. And so like that 70% on the job is being thoughtful about what that might be for somebody that's in the U.S. or, and in particular, and even within the U.S., what that looks like for somebody that's around the location of the headquarters versus somebody that might be at a more geographically dispersed location in the United States versus what that looks like for somebody in an international location where there's going to be some clear diversity that between that country and the U.S. I worked with the HR partners very closely in this realm. The international-based HR partners specifically became a pretty close community that anytime we wanted to roll something out, working with them to help us understand how this translated in different parts of the world and how do we come up with options in this like 70, 20, 10 world, come up with options that really make sense for them. And, and those usually then were connected to the outputs of like talent reviews or the outputs of performance development type of conversations where they may have really rich conversations, but what we find too is they may have a really rich dialogue about somebody with where they want to go developmentally in their career, but they don't know what to do about it. And so having a list of list of options of here's different things that could be very like practical solutions of things that you could do on the job via coaching and mentoring or through classroom-based learning that we have available internally is extraordinarily helpful to empower those leaders to really come full circle on those conversations with employees. You know, that makes me think about frontline, the mid-level and the executive leadership programs that are out there. And when you start thinking about that at a global scale, that in itself also has some additional nuances to it. What advice would you give those who are evaluating their programs at those three different levels? And what should they think about that may not be obvious to a new L&D leader. I would say consider metrics that matter to the business is the most important. Um, and what I mean by that, in the world of HR and talent, we may focus more on things like, well, we're super excited because 3,000 people attended our training across the globe. Yeah. I don't care if 3,000 people attended the training. What's the impact that it had? What 3,000 people says to me, is, you know, when I think about the time, the cost of what it took to take those 3,000 out of the operation or out of their regular job, to potentially travel them to a certain location if it's an in-person training, to some of the logistics that would be involved in the cost of that, that, and then just like underlying training costs, is like, you know, let's say that translates to half a million dollars of cost for the company. That's a pretty distributed cost. You don't necessarily see it right on the bottom line of one, like, oh, this training program cost half a mil, but when you look at it from all the different angles of the cost, 
that's what it comes out to. And so when I hear, well, 3,000 people went through our training, we're super excited about that. What I really hear is we just spent half a million dollars. Like if you think about it more from a business owner perspective, this is my business and this money's coming out of my bank account that I want to know, well, that's fantastic. But what's the impact of that? What are the business results of it? Yes. And then, and there's two, two examples of where this might be a red flag or kind of a green flag on this. Like if you have a leader, you know, these are actually some real world examples that I've seen. It's like, we need to roll out a leadership development training, you know, across the globe because we really need to improve core leadership fundamentals of our leaders and help improve the culture. I'm like, wow, that's really ambiguous, right? Like, what are we really, how do we know that we've been successful? How do you measure that? Like, how do you measure, how is there measurable improvement on that? And like, what exactly are we trying to accomplish with that, right? Other than saying that we can check the box that we, and is it really gonna lead to any sort of behavior change? Is it gonna really lead to any sort of culture change? Versus another situation where it's like, we need to, a big imperative coming from the board from the C-suite as a strategic imperative saying we need to re-earn the trust of employees and customers. And why this is so important is because we know that even like a half percent improvement on trust has X million dollar impact on our revenue, right? And so we know that if we invest in improving the trust of our employees and customers, it's actually going to have a bottom line revenue impact. We know this because we had some folks from our advanced data analytics group that have actually run the analysis. Um, to, to tell us this, right? And so it showed up and that was a board imperative and how do we do this? So now it's, which is, now this is fantastic from a training and development perspective. This is like, from a, from a measurement perspective, this is a dream. This is exactly what you want. This is exactly what you need to get to when somebody says, well, we need to just improve the culture of the organization. You have to get to like, what is a measurable impact? So in that example, we actually have tools in place that measure trust levels via like internally with engagement survey, externally with like a promoter score type of surveys that are done on a regular basis. So you have a baseline, you have a mechanism in place that's measuring that. Then you come up with whatever solution you devise that you come up with. And then you have something post experience that you can also then go back and measure that and see, you know, was there actually an impact percentage wise on trust? So there's you're and you're measuring, then you are measuring something that matters to the business because you're getting to bottom line business impact results where it made sense that we put an investment in dollars in this space. Which is why reading those reports are pretty important so you know what the key performance indicators are of the company. So whatever program you're putting together, you can make sure you're aligning it because you know the reports are there. Absolutely. When it comes to addressing cultural diversity in a variety of languages when developing these programs, what questions would you ask to ensure you're meeting the business needs while being sensitive to the outcomes not being lost in translation? You know, asking the question of how does this translate to the language and the culture of other parts of the world that are going to be involved in this, that maybe outside of our perspective on the culture that we've grown into and we know. And... What I find too is, you know, wherever that home-based headquarters are, whether it's U.S. or Germany or Japan or wherever the headquarters culture might influence then the culture of the other countries involved and the behaviors and the values and the expectations that come with that, which can be frustrating for other parts of the world. 
And so being really thoughtful about, okay, here's maybe, you know, you're not necessarily going to change necessarily the culture we're trying to create or the values of the organization, et cetera. But I would work with different parts of the organization to translate, like as we're designing a training solution around this or development solution or whatever it might be, how does this translate in, in that? And actually like literally going through some of the training materials with HR partners or with leaders and, and other countries that help me understand where there might be cultural shortfalls and how we can help solution around that. The other thing that I've done that's even more specific and tactical is I was rolling out a workshop and traveling across the globe. I was actually helping to facilitate it. And I was on a flight from the U.S. to uh, Tokyo. It was a long haul flight. And I had gotten this book from our international HR partner. And I said, look, I'm about to go do this workshop in Tokyo. It's not going to be just for those in Japan. It's actually going to be leaders from several different Asian countries, Pacific Islands, and Australia that are going to be at this training. They're all coming together for a larger meeting. And so how do I make sure that what I'm saying, I don't want to come across as somebody that is not respectful of all the different cultures and, and you know, blindly delivering training that may not resonate uh, with the cultural aspects of their countries. And so she had given me a book that was basically like a few pages on each country that just talked through different cultural dynamics. And I remember I was on this flight and I'm literally had my reading light on. Everyone else is asleep. I'm flipping through this book, you know, literally checking the box for the different countries and looking at the different cultural nuances and taking notes and then cross-referencing that with my training material and like a few simple changes. For the most part, we were okay, but there's a few simple things like I remember one was when we were talking about like leadership behaviors, there was actually some specific perspective on like when you're having a conversation with somebody, you need to look them in the eye, right? And I was like, mm-hmm. okay. And it was like literally spelled out, cross-referencing it, particularly with some of my Asian countries, oh, that's not going to work. So right. um, that's not being very respectful and thoughtful of that. So I found a way to adjust, you know, and being really thoughtful about how I could still teach that competency, but not highlight that point and talk about how you do it in a way that would be respectful of the culture that they're in. So lots of reading and research. I I recall uh, when I was in international education, we had a book called Kiss, Bow, or Shake Hands that was very helpful in going through all those different pieces and just from the basic greeting and welcoming somebody. Absolutely. So when you think about the next big thing in talent development, uh, perhaps maybe leadership development programs, pull out that magic ball and tell us what you think is coming up. You think about where we are from a global perspective right now, from a worldly perspective, societal perspective, I'd say, like, you know, having just gone through the pandemic, the COVID and kind of where people are right now in, you know, obviously like the hybrid model and leaders are adjusting to that. And I think there's been already been a lot of development in that space will continue to be up. I think the next big thing though related is the mindset of people has changed significantly of career-minded folks to, to be more in this kind of gig economy. The technological advances are also becoming accelerated, particularly as a result of the past couple of years and just as technology continues to advance. And there's this term I recently heard is like the rise of the career nomad, where people don't feel necessarily connected to a particular company as much as they do, like the passion and the purpose and the work that they do. And that might mean you know, you go and do some work at one company and it's more of kind of gig and then you go to another company and it's a rising kind of mentality. And so what I see is the next big thing in leadership development programs is really starting to meet this need in a bigger way and how we're thinking about how we develop leaders. It's not just about how you lead your team and how you provide direction and guidance and vision to a team and 
you know, performance manage them and delegate to them, but it's like, how do I think about the larger ecosystem of the resources that are available that I'm leveraging to accomplish the work that I need to in my space of leadership, which is kind of a, it's completely different mentality and it's really flips it on end, right? It's not just about the three or four people that might report into me or 10 people or whatever, but it's not just those direct reports, but thinking more largely about different creative ways to think about resourcing from a people perspective and a technology perspective and how all of that comes together in really creative, innovative ways to accomplish the needs of the organization. And those are the the leaders that really embrace that. I think that's gonna be the next big thing in leadership development. And I think it's really gonna be what's gonna help define and shift kind of the, the paradigm of what the leader of the future looks like. That the persona of a good leader is shifting significantly right now. And I think a lot in this space. They'll definitely have that agile mindset. And so helping people understand what that is and what that looks like. I often use the description of, think of yourself like water. Water finds a way to tell you there's a leak in your roof. Yeah, that's a good analogy. I like that. Right. (laughs) So one of the things that we like to do during this podcast is our listeners really enjoy learning about what others in their field are reading and listening to. The sorts of books you're reading, podcasts like this one you're listening to, YouTubes, white papers. So what are the things that you're using these days to learn more about talent development? So this is going to be maybe off the beaten path from a talent development perspective, but I love to read The Economist. Again, kind of going back to like it's it's first most important to understand business impact before you get into like developmental impact. So that just helps me stay more connected to what's happening around the world and some of the business issues that the companies are facing. And then there's a couple organizations that I'm part of that I find from a thought leader perspective that can... My, so I live in, I'm Chicago based and some of the organizations that I joined, there's something called the HR Management Association of Chicago, which is now the Hermec Institute of the Executive Club of Chicago. And then also this group called the Executive Learning Exchange, which are learning leaders from all around. It was really just Chicago and Wisconsin that is broadened out now that we're more virtual. Those are both fantastic organizations that I have grown deep relationships with thought leaders. And that's how I learn. I don't learn as much from reading white papers. I just don't have the, the interest or books. Sometimes I'll listen to podcasts, great ones as this. But I've actually found for me and just how I'm energized um, being part of those networks is where I drive a lot of my professional development energy. Well, I want to thank you for all of these amazing stories and expertise that you've been sharing with our listeners. It's been a pleasure to have you as our guest. It's been an absolute honor, and thank you for inviting me to be part of this, Michelle. If you enjoyed this episode, please follow this podcast, listen to some of our past episodes, share with your L&D colleagues, and please come back and listen as we continue to discuss learning and development trends, challenges, and future as we expand our L&D conversations from the C-suite to thought leaders and practitioners in our field. Remember, we know leadership matters, because everyone wins when the leader gets better. Let's help our leaders continuously learn and get better.